Hi everyone and welcome to season two of the Everyday Activist podcast. If you're new here, my name is Eugenia Chow and I run the Instagram account Eugenia. The Everyday Activist podcast is founded under the belief that there's no one-size-fits-all approach to activism and anyone can get involved. This week's podcast guest is Amat, a black Muslim writer based in Asheville, North Carolina. An experienced writer with published works on several major platforms such as Melanin Basecamp, Beer Junkie, and Brown Girl Green, his writing centers around diversity in the outdoor space, health, and wellness. His work embodies not only the inner workings of a mind and spirit, but also current events and issues. In this episode, we discuss colorism in the outdoors, the intersection between faith, wellness, and conservation, the lack of representation in the outdoor space, and what it means to be a steward of the earth. I personally found this conversation super enriching and learned so much about how conservation and the outdoors links back to faith and also wellness. It was such an honor to have Amat on the show as a guest, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Hi Amat, and welcome to this episode of the Everyday Activist Podcast. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about colorism in the outdoors, the intersection between wellness and conservation, and also social justice and outdoor education. Thank you so much for having me, Eugenia. I'm excited to talk about these things. I think they're very important and hopefully it'll inspire us to uh, be more open-minded and solution-driven to solving these concerns. So firstly, could you please tell us a bit about yourself? Where are you from? How would you describe the work that you do for a living? And what drives you to do what you do? So right now I'm from Asheville, North Carolina. Um, I was born in France, in Paris, and moved to the U.S. when I was two and a half. Um, and so it's been a quite a journey. Uh, what I do now, actually, is I am a writer and a freelancer in the outdoor industry. So I pretty much write for outdoor publications and media outlets from like Melanin Basecamp to Gear Junkie, uh, and initially working on writing for other publications like The Alpinist and a few more. Uh, and I really like touching upon outdoor exploration and self-exploration, you know, where once, you know, you touch on what it means to take care of the environment, explore the environment, you also can step in and see how you can take care of yourself and explore yourself. So since a lot of the work you do revolves around the outdoors, what initially drew you to this this line of work or this activity in the first place? What, what drew you to the outdoors? Hmm. That's a great question because I feel like as kids, we kind of have like an affinity towards the outdoors and nature, but it wasn't something that I intentionally set my mind to until I was in college. Um, So while I was in college at ECU, uh, East Carolina University, North Carolina, um, towards my junior and senior year, I was kind of going through some things. I was struggling with my sense of self. I feel like I, I felt like I didn't really have drive or or purpose or really ambition um and so i started looking into like religion and philosophy just trying to find ways to just take better care of myself honestly that was like the end game um and i was raised muslim but i didn't really start practicing until college and so that was a time for me to just to see okay what what wisdoms can i grab from this religion you know like is this something i resonate with 
other do I have coinciding values already that can move me forward? And I did. And something that I really uh, admired that was from the Quran uh, was this sense of human beings being a khalifa, like a steward, like a representative of God. Where it's initially saying, you know, if God is merciful and forgiving and caring and understanding, you know, try to have similar traits where we are merciful and forgiving, where we do take care of ourselves and the planet. And I really like that because um, it was at that time also, Eugenia, where I was watching documentaries about climate change and a lot of you know oppressive systems that were really making it difficult for people to live sustainable lives. And I felt like that was it. This was the path that I felt like I could very much grow and help grow from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's interesting that you talk about how your faith ties into your role as a conservationist. Um, earlier before this conversation started recording, we were talking about how you were a psychology major back when you were studying at ECU. I was wondering if that understanding of the mind somehow connects your faith and whether or not that relationship informs your separate relationship with the outdoors and the environment and whether there's a link between what you studied and what you're doing now. Yeah, I think there's definitely a link. Um, I feel like there are also barriers that I've had to, sorry, I have a cat sitting next to me that I don't want to scratch. Um, I think that there is a, there's different links that I've noticed. There are also barriers that I um, am working on addressing to just simplify this process of being a steward on Earth. And so with psychology, it was really cool to tap into thoughts, feelings, and actions. You know, and then motivations, you know, what drives a person, the different forms of conditioning, uh, different forms of reinforcement to like increase a behavior or decrease a behavior. Um, and that was really all fascinating to learn. Um, the thing though, that I think was one of the barriers that I actually realized recently was um, there was not one class that I took, unfortunately, that let me understand the different theories of whether it's self-development and apply them in which at the end of the semester, I can have like a self-report and say, this is where I grew, this is where I feel like I you know, could use more improvement on. You know, so there wasn't a sense of true application of these theories that came more so after school, you know, after I completed my bachelor's where I had did some more soul searching and digging and, and initially what I'm doing now, which is working on strengthening my sense of wellness and initially strengthening the sense of wellness for others to be better stewards on earth. And um, yeah, another link I think is just writing. Um, I've enjoyed writing and right now I am a freelance writer as you know, I have mentioned, I write for media outlets and, and uh, publications and writing to me is such an introspective activity. Um, and I admire that. So it also I think falls under the umbrella in psychology and like, yeah, mental wellness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. Do you ever feel, so when I thought of psychology, well, I, when I think of psychology and applying it to the environmental field, I think <clears throat> of it as understanding human behavior and how you can apply psychology to mobilize people to take action to improvement. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting that you've talked more of it from the spiritual and mindful side in terms of connecting to nature. But I was wondering if you've ever 
applied your psychology knowledge in the former way where you're thinking about how you can change people's minds and get people to care more about the environment and the outdoors. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. I actually had a friend, uh, a Michael Fredericton, who literally left about 30 minutes ago. Um, and we have our own business endeavors and he's we've initially been helping each other work on ours, uh, on each other's. And I'm not gonna give too much away, but one of my goals is to strengthen our sense of stewardship. And so I think like one of the best ways to do that is by start with the mind, you know, changing our perception. And I think this almost goes along with cognitive behavioral therapy, where I think the main focus of CBT is to understand that our thoughts drive the way we feel and think, you know, and it's, it starts from our beliefs and our perception, and that can alter the way yeah, we act and the way we you know, regulate our emotions. And so with initially strengthening, strengthening the sense of stewardship through psychology, um, I think it really comes with understanding the many facets of this world. You know, before this convo started, you mentioned the triangle where there's like three homes, ourself, our literal home, and then I believe the planet was with those three. Yeah, so I think understanding um, the players at hand and, and having the mindset needed to understand how everything's interconnected will make it more probable for us to, um, for us to implement like positive change. You know, so one example is, it's very difficult for an individual to do a lot of change. An individual can do a lot of change, but I think a person is more, you know, there's strength in numbers, you know, power in numbers. So if you have a group of individuals who feel like there's a lot of plastic pollution in, the, in our waterways, you know, they can come together, do research on the negative aspects of plastic pollution, on the livelihood of whether it's like the city, inner city, or maybe on the outskirts, how it affects the farmers, their livestock, their crops, you know, and then they have all this research to back it up. And now they use psychology as a means uh, to almost integrate sociology, you know, get people together, build a community where now you have like-minded individuals who work towards a global cause. And I think that's definitely one of the ways that psychology can be used to just make us better activists. Yeah, and that's what I also appreciate about the environmental movement so much is that it's so interdisciplinary and you don't need to be studying environmental issues to be a part of the movement. Exactly. I was, yeah, I was thinking about this recently and it applies, every single discipline applies to environment. You could be a scientist, you could be an engineer, like doing geoengineering or be a bot botanist um, understanding plants and how that contributes to, I don't know, carbon capture. And yeah, yeah, there's so many ways to do your part and like contribute to this movement that just connects so many areas. Exactly, exactly. And I think that once a person realizes that, you know, a mindset and perception is something that can be grown through school or through like different mediums, but a person doesn't have to be within four walls to gain an understanding of, um, like you said, environmentalism. I think it's just a matter of like taking the time to step inside and taking the time and be willing and intentional to 
step outside and connect with others and understand that you know, we all have minds with molding. You know, our minds are malleable and we can mold them in a way that's beneficial for ourselves and society. I think that's definitely a path forward. Mm-hmm. For sure. And so you talked a bit about how you, uh, you and your friend have business endeavors moving forward related to um, psychology and human mar- in the environment. If you uh, are willing to share, could you elaborate on that? Yeah, sure thing. I think it's uh, just a matter of understanding, like once again, um, where we all fit in this role of, um, in our relationship between like humans and the earth. And so um, ideally, Eugenia, it's more so finding the best way to make it easier for us to be stewards on earth, you know, because there's so many barriers and so many aspects of life. What can we do to not only recognize those barriers, um, dismantle them, but also facilitate movement through them? You know, imagine like a stream and they're like rocks kind of blocking the stream. What can we do to move those rocks to have like this free flowing water? And so with this industry business model, it's still in the works, um, but the goal, once again, really is to understand. Initially, it's the steps are, I feel, anyone can start from any aspect of life, I feel, to be a steward on Earth. You know, from the financial side, if they want to, like, save money, not waste money, they can invest, you know, in themselves to fund or fuel their aspirations towards environmental movements or goals. But, like, one of the steps, the major steps regarding this business model is um, working towards building that intention to change, but also understanding that we have to really step inside of ourselves. That means really understanding our ethics, our values, our morals, uh, how do we regulate our emotions? Um, are we intellectually well, meaning are we curious? Do we have structures of knowledge and information built for us to navigate and explore the world and be solution driven enough that way it doesn't matter what barrier it is we can help find the best path to break it through and just have more positive growth so um once again it's still like a, a very much so a work in progress but i feel that with wellness and with the environment they, they go hand in hand i think it's hard to separate the two And I think the main theme of my business model is to really take time to be introspective, find out the different ways in which um, we can go ahead and facilitate growth in the many dimensions that make up our earth, from the spiritual side to the environmental, financial, our jobs, our occupations, you know, society, our own environmental wellness at home, our room. So just like the three, you know, pointed triangle you mentioned, essentially understanding how we can be better stewards every, in every facet of our lives, you know, in an attainable way. That way it's not overwhelming, just a step-by-step process, initially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I love the way you use the word facilitate because you're not forcing anyone to do anything, but you're making it easier for people to take action and also share the same experience with the environment yeah i'm not sure if you've ever heard of nudges no. term. um but essentially nudges are 
ways to sort of help people change their behavior without doing so in a very direct way. You're in a, I guess, like a gentle, yeah, yeah. A subtle way where you make changes in people's environments rather than make direct changes so that you're helping facilitate that change. An example would be instead of making people go vegetarian, you would create, you would work with the dining hall to like incorporate more like green monday yeah so you're helping people do that change and like make that behavioral change yeah changing the default options and making it easier to yeah i like that i like that i really do like that i think that, that that's that's conditioning that helps it's, that it's not like you're shoving info or, or a way of life down people's throats it's saying hey there are other possibilities and there's you know here's like like a buffet kind of just try try it out you know it's yeah. not like here's one meal that you have to eat yeah it's also giving yeah. people autonomy over their actions so making people feel empowered to make decisions mm -hmm. just changing what the decisions are <laughs> which is important because i feel like at the end of the day we all you know having a sense of control is something that gives us comfortability and so when that is taken away i feel like that can be give a person a sense of like oh it's a threat so now i no longer want to be part of this you know so once again just facilitating the process making it just making it i think that that just makes it more so much more holistic and just i think it, it shows a level of understanding and how to implement change yeah for sure so you talked a bit about how you want people to become stewards of the earth i was wondering what this sort of looks like to you and what does it mean to be a steward of the earth in your opinion and I guess by that same vein what it means to be a conservationist or an environmentalist mm, mm. yeah um so I think there are, there are a few parts to that question I think when it comes to defining a steward I think it's understanding that we're leaders in our own right and when I think of a leader regarding a steward or a caretaker, I think of a compassionate, understanding, thoughtful, gentle, um, prudent. Maybe there could be a little stubbornness depending on like the, the, the right areas, but just a sense of drive and, and a sense of empathy and sympathy. I think those encapsulate a steward where a steward understands the interconnectedness of humanity, plants, and animals in our earth, and that a steward understands uh, the symbiosis, you know, that there is this interconnection and that we can have a sense of mutual benefit, you know, between species, between organisms, and learning from nature, learning from the earth, you know, of the different systems at hand that inspire us to work together. You know, you look at the way bees work, you look at the way ants work, how they work together, you know, how, how a lot of animals have their own sense of community and society. And they've had a lot of time and a lot of years to find the best methods that have kept their lives sustainable without the harm of unfortunate, you know, human, uh, you know, causes. 
but I feel like there are a lot of systems at play that are beneficial and flourishing that we can learn from. And I feel a steward has an understanding of the relationship and our place in this world um, where it's not a human centered, it's not a gimme, gimme, it's not a, we have more autonomy and understanding technology, language, you know, conscious capacity over these animals. So let's just like um, colonize and conquer, destroy. No, it's a sense of we are a part of this. We're all a part of this beautiful system. And if we're given these skills and attributes, use them to the best of our ability to keep life moving forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that was beautifully said. So just to switch gears a bit, based on some of the writing I've seen you do and based on, I guess, your work in the outdoors, you talk a lot about how there is a lack of diversity in the outdoors and how BIPOC people are often disproportionately affected by man-made occurrences, but also natural disasters alike. Can you speak more on your experience with the narrative around whiteness and the lack of diversity in the outdoors and when you sort of started to realize that this was an issue and how that continues to affect the work that you do? Yeah, I think um, it's, 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 I think it's fairly apparent, at least to me, you know, if you're to drive down, you know, and when I have driven down predominantly Black neighborhoods, um, you're not going to see that many green spaces, you know. I don't feel like there are as many nature parks within proximity in uh, like low socioeconomic status or predominantly black neighborhoods that I saw in predominantly white neighborhoods or in areas that are, um, yeah, just less populated by BIPOC community members. Um, I think an example for me regarding the lack of diversity in the outdoors kind of came uh, from the first outdoor economy conference that I ever went to. And it was in Asheville, actually. I lived in Raleigh and it was in 2019. I bought a tent and initially I just like, I spent close to a thousand dollars because I had the goal of like, okay, I have this business endeavor. I'm still working on it now, but it was a goal of like, I want to make connections, see if I can connect with really like cool people um, and see who I relate to whether it's by race, by religion, by ethnicity, by values, by even just the pure love of the outdoors. Um, and when I went there, I I could only count a handful of black people, if not just BIPOC individuals in that conference. And it really made me think like, whoa, like are black people just not interested in this? You know, uh, is it because they're not in the area? Um, is there something that's a part of history that made it so Black people don't feel comfortable? Or are there just oppressive systems at play in the outdoor industry that make it more so where BIPOC individuals don't have access to these jobs, these opportunities? And so that made me really think. It made me really think. And it was after writing for getting to know Danielle Williams, which, I, which is the founder and senior editor of Melbourne Base Camp. I met her at that conference and it was through her and her um, enthusiasm for me to write for her, thankfully, um, that I got to explore, <coughs> excuse me, that I got to explore the history of conservation 
and that's probably one of my favorite articles I've written because I got to learn about Theodore Roosevelt and Madison Grant. You know, I got to learn about how eugenics and racist policies and views played a role in why there were not that many black or black black individuals, even like indigenous peoples in the outdoor space, in outdoor recreation. And so that made me realize like, okay, these are man-made occurrences that really separate and disproportionately affect BIPOC individuals. And that steps into the larger thing of um, just like, not just man-made disasters, but natural disasters. You know, when you place BIPOC individuals in an area that you know is more likely to have earthquakes or flooding, right? You're pretty much saying, well, we don't really care. You know, we have this eugenic mentality anyway. So let's just like, let nature take its course and we'll keep thriving. You know, so when you see occurrences like what happened in like Hurricane Katrina, or how whether just the media portrays people of color when disasters hit, or responses to man-made um, occurrences or disasters from BIPOC communities to non-BIPOC communities, there there's definitely a narrative that's um, it's just not I think genuine and doesn't give a proper representation of not just the Black community, but the differences within uh, the perspectives within the Black community and BIPOC communities. So yeah, I think a few things are apparent, but a lot of things are still swept under the rug. And that's why I appreciate all the DEI work happening from Mountain Base Camp onward, uh, from businesses, organizations, and time will be the true tester regarding how genuine and sincere these organizations, people, myself included, are towards making uh, these changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess moving forward, how do you think we as a collective can help rewrite, rewrite the narrative around diversity in the outdoors and who has access to these spaces and who is involved in these activities as well? Mm. I think there's and this almost kind of goes back to initially, even like the business model I had in mind, but I really think these are journeys that we have to take within ourselves, you know, and, and out into society. And it's there that we can understand what is easy for us to grasp and where we feel a lot of tension and, tension and resistance. And then where we, the areas in which we feel that resistance, ask ourselves, why? Why do I feel this way? Okay, is it tied to the way I was raised? What's it tied to? Is it tied to um, my upbringing? Or is it tied to uh, my insecurities? Or, you know, and after we realize a few of these barriers, we can put our minds together and see, okay, how do we break them down? What's the best way to go about this? Um, so I think it's an individual and collective effort. Um, education is huge. Education is huge. And I think education can go really far in helping reframe the narrative of what it means to be a steward, what it means to have the outdoors more inclusive and, and work towards justice, educating, you know, justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. I think it's also important to understand that education can only go so far because we are emotive beings. And so sometimes our emotions aren't always the most reasonable. Right. So if a person has made up their mind, even if you throw all the facts at them, they're not going to really budge. 
So I think another way we can really do it and make change and build bridges is by like sympathy and empathy, you know? Even through hard facts at a person, uh, but if they're still hold on to separatist views and saying racist should only be with racist and we're not gonna intermix. I think a way that we can break those barriers is sympathy and empathy, you know? Like, or once they understand that a close family member, a close loved one is impacted by whatever they had opposing view towards, um, I think that would change their perception to say, oh, well, that's a family member. I love them. Well, okay, let me change my perception then because I love them regardless of whatever they like, whatever they do. And that in and of itself, I think is a step towards helping people be more open-minded. Mm -hmm. So ever since being involved in the space, have you noticed any progress in terms of accessibility and diversity in the outdoors? Do you think, I, I read in art how national parks are working to fight racism and they're sort of addressing these different issues that have been brought up by many conservationists and a lot of activists in the space. Do you think that this is another form of greenwashing or do you think genuine progress being made in these spaces? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, because I think, I once again truly think time will tell. Um, I think that there is progress being made because, so Eugenia, I've taken, I've taken actually a break from social media. Um, I'm actually taking a break from social media for like a little close to a month or about a little over. But before this break, I've realized that there's not been one day that I've been on Instagram that people don't talk about equity, diversity, and inclusion. And that to me is insane, you know? Like maybe a few years ago, you could go out, I could go on Instagram and just be like, I'm eating cookies, or I'm watching a movie, I'm reading a book, you know, just life. But there's not been one day that I've gone on social media that people don't talk about these things. And the fact that it's apparent shows that I think there's change. Um, whether it's positive change and it's efficient change, that's another story. And so, you know, whether it's like posting black squares or yellow squares, um, I think there's a lot of methods that need to change for us to reach that pinnacle point of like legitimate action. And so I say yes and no. I say there's always room for progress. I'm glad that these are out on the forefront and now people can acknowledge, you know, and even if people don't agree, it's so much out on the forefront that it's a, you know, it's something that they have to acknowledge to disagree. So um, regarding the outdoor space, I think a little bit, I think a little bit. I think a lot of companies are working hard. There's a lot of coalition building. There's a lot of groups, especially the media publication outlet. People are working hard to make it inclusive for people to, like BIPOC individuals or people of marginalized communities to write, to have those opportunities, brand ambassador opportunities, um, sponsorship opportunities. So I think there are companies that are genuinely trying and working hard to strengthen that sense of inclusivity. Um, I think it's just a matter of like finding the best ways to do it. 
because I think when it comes to topics like this Eugenia, emotions can be very high. And sometimes when emotions are high, sometimes myself included, people don't take the best course of action. So sometimes I think it does take a little bit of time, which unfortunately people don't want because we want immediate change. So that's why I say yes and no. Um, regarding national parks, I still have to do more research. I have read a little bit here and there, but sometimes I don't think it's the, the change that people truly want. It's just like little steps here and there, but it's not like this change people truly want to see just yet. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely agree with the point that you made about social media. Social media. Mm -hmm. I didn't really realize that until you said it, but there really has been a huge shift in the way I think a lot of people use social media and mm -hmm. the way people are using it as a way to promote certain information and to raise awareness about issues. Yeah, exactly. Where people's like work should be stopped, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. is a really helpful first step because I don't think I would have learned about these issues with racism in the outdoors if it hadn't been for social media, if it hadn't been for certain posts that people were sharing. Exactly. I resonate with that. Yeah, it's been a nice catalyst. Social media is definitely a catalyst towards positive change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so how does your social media break relate to this? Or is that just a completely separate thing that you decided to take for yourself? Um, I think it relates more to, well, I think it relates to both, you know, I feel like, I, and I've taken a step back from a lot of things, actually, it's not just social media. It's almost like I've taken a life sabbatical. Um, really? Yeah, no, really. It's like, this is the first time in a long time where I'm just like, almost like, because we can't truly stop time, but I think this is the closest I've been to really slowing down time for me. And just like reassess what I think is important you know, and that includes working on these business endeavors, working on what it means to be a conservationist, working on what it means to take better care of myself, you know, because it's hard to like have a goal that I want to achieve in a business that I want to see through if I am not living the best life that's conducive to the growth needed to make those changes, you know. So it's been, yeah, it's been nice taking a step back. It's helped me be a little more intentional daily about what I want to do. I just want to be also mindful. I don't want this just to be like a trial period where like athletes and I could go back on social media and I'm like the same habits and the same things occur. You know, this is a time I think for me to like really mold my mind and my habits in a way that are healthy enough to support a positive individual and collective community. Always good to have a moment of reflection. Yeah. <laughs> to reprioritize your, yeah, no, re, reorganize your priorities. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So this podcast, The Everyday Activist, is based on the idea that there isn't one size fits all approach to activism, and contrary to, I guess, popular belief or popular understanding, you don't necessarily have to be a frontline activist to be an activist or someone who's contributing to the movement. Uh, it's not to undermine the work that they do, but I feel like there are so many ways to utilize your skills and your interests to be a catalyst for change. Mm -hmm. That's sort of the premise of this podcast. I love it. 
my idea of uh, being an activist. So my question for you would be, what does being an activist mean for you? And what is, yeah, what does that look like to you? And I guess, how do you incorporate that into your daily life? Yeah, what does an activist mean to me? An activist, an activist I think, is someone who wants to be better than they were yesterday. I think, in a way, that might be the true that to me, a true, not the true, but I, I think an important facet of what it means to be an activist, where it's also understanding we're human, we're gonna slip, we're gonna make mistakes, but have the intention to be better than we were yesterday, right? And I think that being an activist, it's this, it's not a passive endeavor. It, it's something that you have to be very active in. A person has to be intentional and conscientious. It's not something where you're going to sit and let the water take you. You're going to be in a canoe and you're going to have a direction. You know, you're going to pull out the compass. You're going to find a way to move through this river that's life, you know. And so an activist to me is someone who is a caretaker, who I think care takes care of themselves enough to fill the cups of others, you know, where it's hard to serve tea when I don't have any tea for myself to serve, you know? And so I think that it's just more so, there's a quote by this poet and his name's Rainier Maria Rilke. And I think he's like this German Austrian poet uh, of like the 19th century. And he wrote, he had this quote, and it's the only journey is the one within. And I think an activist understands that journey because it's an introspective journey. And as an activist, I think an activist is always one looking to change for the better, not just themselves, but the world. And I think one of the best ways to do that is by looking inside. What perspectives can I gain? Have I looked through every nook and cranny of my mind, body, and soul to alleviate the world of these conditions? You know, and, and so I think that's what an activist is to me. Someone who takes care of themselves, understands that it's intentional and you can't do this passively, and that by stepping inside themselves, they can step out into the world and understand that it's a collaborative effort. That's kind of a lot, but yeah, in fact, to sum it up into three points, I think someone who uh, understands that it's an individual and collective uh, endeavor and that it takes action and intention. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate what you said about how it's collective as well, because that reminds me of going back to the start of our conversation when we were talking about how we have to protect our three homes, which is ourselves, mm -hmm. our homes, and uh, the environment, the planet, mm -hmm. that everything is interconnected and you can't talk, you can't really address one issue without taking action. For yeah, exactly. Because like, what's, what's the point of like implementing change when there's not even a home to, you know, have that change, you know, like if we have no home that gives us the capacity to live and move forward, then like, 
how we really made change. Yeah. Yeah. Having that spirit of change mm. with yourself as well. Mm -hmm. That's how you inspire others to take action as well. Exactly. So for, I guess, more lighthearted questions. Mm. Uh, <laughs> What are some of your favorite outdoor places that you've been to? I think, well, I live in Asheville and Asheville's nice because the Blue Ridge Mountains and I've gone hiking the past few days and it's just been amazing. When you're driving on the parkway and you see just how vast these mountains are, it just makes you just want to just sit and stare. You're just awe-inspired. You're, you're, in, you're in wonder. So Asheville's just a nice spot for that. Um, also in 2008, <laughs> thankfully I had the opportunity to visit Morocco for a summer. Yeah. And I got to do the whole like camel riding in the Sahara Desert or part of the Sahara Desert. And to be able to just like to sleep under the stars and see the sunrise and the sunset to me, that was amazing. You know, I think that it's imprinted in my mind. It's just like the beauty of life is just um, that can be found in nature. This, this something as simple as like this rising in the sun, setting of the sun, the day and the night, and it's the stars that come out. I think are just, uh, there's something about nature that I think is, makes life worthwhile. Yeah. yeah. So I think those Sahara Desert, um, Blue Ridge Mountains, and I'll let you know the more I explore if I ever find some nice spots I'd love to let you know. Yeah, that sounds amazing already. What about you? Any spots that have come to mind regarding like any favorite outdoor places? So actually I was very lucky to be able to trek like a part of the Himalayas when I was in Nepal. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Wow. Yeah, it's insane. Not even just Firstly, the fact that you're 14,500 water, <laughs> that's already crazy. Um, mm. But it's just so peaceful as well. It's mm. just you and the sound of like the creek water running. And I was there during the fall so that you could see all the colors of the leaf changing. And it that's also amazing. happened to be my first time experiencing fall weather because we don't really have seasons in Hong Kong. Mm. Um, but yeah, just being so up high, it's not something that you're really experiencing. <laughs> other than mm -hmm. if you're on a plane. Mm -hmm, exactly. You're on the ground, but also so high up. It's like this mm -hmm. weird juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah. Very hard to wrap your head around. Wow, I'm sure that was in a beautiful, just like environment in the time, like you said, to step back and not have your phone, you know, and just to, yeah. to be out there with people in nature. Mm -hmm. I also really appreciate the outdoors in Hong Kong. Mm. Not something that people usually imagine when they think of Hong Kong a lot of hidden trails and hidden um, mini mountains I wouldn't call them mountains more like little <laughs> hills yeah. um, all over and usually you can just go for a 30 minute walk and you have the view of the entire city and it's just like always very that's nice it's ref I can see that being yeah refreshing too yeah, yeah. It's like not take like our backyards for granted you know yeah especially when you're constantly in the hustle and bustle and yeah <laughs> in the city it's nice mm -hmm. i mean it's still busy on the mount on the mountains but like being a step away from that is very refreshing mm -hmm. yeah so do you have any advice for someone who wants to become a more outdoorsy person and who wants to explore the outdoors more 
<clears throat> yeah, I think dovetailing off what we just said, I think exploring our backyards, I think a lot of the time, especially when there's outdoor industry on, on media, movies, and FOMO, the sense of like, I have to find this like mountainous region in Washington or in, you know, in Nepal or um, in Africa and Asia, all these places around the world. And I feel like sometimes it can make us lose sight of really what's in our backyard, you know? And sometimes it is that 30 minute trail in Hong Kong, a 20 minute, uh, you know, parkway walk, uh, here in Asheville or like a simple neighborhood park in Raleigh that can help so much, you know, give us time to breathe and reflect and just step away, listen to nature. And so um, I think one of the best ways to say is, yeah, just like proximity, understanding that like we have, people have access to places that can go ahead and hike and step outdoors. It is a reality though that uh, there are people in the predominantly like BIPOC communities and low SES communities that don't have access to green spaces as much. So I think um, with that, it's finding ways, and I think this is where society and people have to come together to make it more accessible for people to step outside. And so um, traveling is, is a way, uh, I think also, building community. So where sometimes, uh, as we mentioned, you know, a collective effort can be a lot stronger than an individual effort. So if a person wants to go to the Redwood Mountains, or no, sorry, go to the, you know, check out the Redwood Forest, and they're an inner city kid, you know, maybe they can build a community or join a community that also is pretty uh, passionate about going there or doing these things. Uh, even if it's not the Redwoods, but just like a park nearby, but having um, that social, uh, that aspect of social wellness can help. Um, outdoorsy, buying secondhand is totally cool. I think there's a stigma when it comes to outdoor communities and industry that people have to get like, you know, the North Face or the Patagonia and things like that. And sure, people value them because maybe it's the, how they make people feel alongside um, the materials and their ethics and their circular models and things like that. But these things can be very expensive too. So like, it's okay to go to a park and a trail and wear what you want. If you have hand-me-downs, wear it, you know? Don't let society standards or norms be another barrier for you to step outside. Um, and I think another thing is just to help people be more outdoorsy. Um, just change the definition. Outdoorsy doesn't necessarily mean a person who skis and does high risk extreme sports. Outdoorsy is a person who steps outside in general. You know, so if you're literally even on, on your front lawn or backyard or going to the park or walking to the store, that sense of outside, anytime you're outside, makes you an outdoorsy person because you're not you're no longer staying inside. Um, I'd encourage it more so now than ever, especially with quarantine. It's been over a year since COVID has really hit the US. So I think it's paramount, I think, just towards growth to enjoy nature and, and reap its benefits. Definitely. Yeah, I really like what you mentioned about 
how we need to get over this single image of what an outdoorsy person looks like because currently it's not it's very much i think we all have a specific image that comes to mind when we're mm-hmm. outdoors person and yeah yeah i don't know just like what you mentioned about how you don't have to have the most expensive gear you don't have to be going to these highest places or doing extreme sports it makes me think a lot about it reminds me a lot about the narrative around veganism as well Mm. yeah parallels this whole thing needs to be more accessible otherwise people are barred from being a part of this community a part of this movement Mm, mm, mm. i'm glad you brought that up i'm actually i like to work towards eating a little more conscientious and yeah, there are a lot of aspects of veganism that I very much appreciate. Um, so yeah, once again, just accessibility. And if that means like corporations and governments or organizations change the way that looks by representation, you know, including more BIPOC folk or literally implementing change in those areas where accessibility is limited, that's like, that's, that's the really, those are aspects of change and avenues of change that I think can stand the test of time. And so finally, do you have any recommendations for people who want to contribute to this whole movement, um, whether it be like organizations to donate to, resources to learn from, people to follow, mm-hmm. read, documentaries to watch, everything, anything and everything? Yes, uh, I love this question. Uh, you've asked a lot of really great questions, Eugene. I just wanted to let you know, very thought-provoking, very thought-provoking, because these are uh, these are questions that will go beyond this this podcast, you know, and these are things that people can learn and travel with, you know, that, that's, a, that's the thing I love about ideas and thoughts and questions, and you ask very good ones. Um, a few come to mind regarding resources. I think just um, social media can be a tool for good and for not good. Um, but when it's a tool for good, there are a lot of organizations and coalitions. Um, so I say Melbourne Base Camp is a great one regarding um, helping people understand the relationship of BIPOC communities in the outdoors. Um, we did mention Brown Girl Green as well, so Christy. Yeah, like her and the work she's doing, the Brown Girl uh, Green team. Um, a lot of brands as well. Um, and there's always room for improvement for, for all, a lot of outdoor brands and organizations um, and, and publications as well. Um, I'll say also a person can look at their own community. You know, a simple Google search will help a person see what organizations are within their proximity where they can actually have hands-on experience and make that change, you know. Um, Regarding film, there's two series that comes to mind. There's a series called Human, and it comes in three volumes, and it's on YouTube, so anyone can watch it. That's why I love the series. And I love it, Eugenia, because every time I've watched it, it's been very difficult not to cry, because I think you really get a sense of humanity and the human condition, and you get a sense of human connection when you watch that. And I think that's one of the strongest things that help people become stewards and work towards a global cause. And I love it because it's initially taking people all over the world 
And without putting the closed captions, you don't get a sense of their name, the country they're from, or the language they speak. You just get the question they're asked and the translation. And I'm telling you, Eugenia, when a person from like a small village is asked, what's beauty to you? And she says, beauty to me is waking up from my village and seeing crops in the field. That changes my perception of beauty. Mm -hmm. I thought she was gonna say a person, place, but she went to like, I can live. I have food, I have a means to get by. And when you watch something like that, I think it makes a person an activist because now it gives them a reason, a cause to want to see more positive change. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, the human series, and I'll see if I can send it to you through email. That way, if you ever want to hyperlink it or however you want to go about sharing it. Um, Put it all in the show notes. Awesome. Sweet. And then uh, this other documentary called Samsara, um, and it came out a few years ago. And it's, there's no narration in the documentary. And I think it's a little over two hours, if not close to three. And it's just a visual understanding of life on Earth. Different environments, cities, um, in the outskirts, different religions, philosophies, different lifestyles. You just get a sense of what life on Earth is, for better or worse. And a person can come up with their own conclusions on how they feel about it, as well as like what change they feel they can do. Um, to just conduct themselves in a better way or can help society move towards um, just better development. Yeah, so I think those are the regarding films or resources I provide. If I really come up with any more, for sure, yeah, there are a lot of books at hand. Um, reading Atomic Habits by James Clear right now. Um, I did read Stamped by Ibrahim X. Kendi and uh, I forgot the other author, I apologize, but that was pretty good. Um, I've heard How to Be an Anti-Racist was good as well. I have not read that yet. But yeah, I think there's a plethora of resources we can grab from, even from ourselves, from family, friends, community, internet, media, so many mediums, art, culture, entertainment. Yeah, just learn from better ourselves. And once we do that, strengthens our sense of sympathy and empathy and makes the world more connected towards being more of a collective. And I think that's important when it comes to activism and stewardship. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Everyday Activist Podcast. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to rate and review the show because that makes a huge difference in helping me get the word of the podcast out. If you've gained anything from listening to this podcast, please do consider supporting the show through a one-off coffee donation or even a monthly donation if you can. This would help compensate speakers for their valuable time and contribute greatly to continuing the show. Thank you again for listening and I'll see you again soon.